Matthew chapter 20. I was so blessed last week. How many were here last week for Pastor Cleve and just blessed with the word that he brought um, and was really mulling on that and just meditating on what, what the Lord spoke through him last week and um, where he wants to go this week. And he went through Luke chapter 14 and the word, if you didn't get to hear it last week, was this house shall be full. This house shall be full. And so I, I received that. I believe that well, that's what God wants to do. But there's a way he wants to do it. And the emphasis in that message was on the servant who brought the invites to, the Lord, to those whom the Lord desired to come. And he goes through those who had excuses, the ones who were were busy with the you know with their various endeavors they were busy with their business purchasing land they were busy with their work and their oxen or they were busy with relationships one said i have i'm getting married and so their priorities were such that they could not respond to the invitation then the master directed the servant to go into the streets and lanes of the city to get the crippled somebody say the crippled the blind and the lame Seeing the house is not yet full, the master then instructs the servants to go into the highways along the hedges and compel them to come in that his house may be filled. And what, what hit me about, struck me about that message is you know, we've been, all year we've been focusing on four things, and it's really about being together as the people of God. How many know there's power when we are together? There's power in the body. There's power when we're functioning as the body, when each joint is supplying to the body. And he spoke to us about the need for servants. Remember the plunger story? Anyone? Anyone take the plunge is what he was challenging us to us. Take the plunge. And uh, as I thought about that and the importance of serving, and this year we've been looking at four things, really praying together, growing together, serving together, and reaching together. And I believe this, that serving together and reaching together go hand in hand. Because it's us working together as the body, functioning as God's called us to, that allows us, and that together is the oneness. And he says, and when Jesus prays for the church, he says, he prays that we would be one as him and the Father is one. And that the world would see that witness. And the world is one because we are one. So that's the togetherness. And then in that serving together. And so I've been really meditating all week on the heart of the servant. And the message this morning is the high calling to serve. The high calling to serve. And... I think there's some things that we have to get straight in our mind and in our heart concerning what it means to serve God because we bring, we, how many know we bring mindsets, we bring things into our Christian walk that, we're, that belong in Egypt. The work of God in our lives was he takes us out of Egypt, he takes us out of the world, but then he does a work of taking the world out of us. That's what he's trying to do. And so those mindsets sometimes affect how we interact, how we serve, how we operate and function in the church because we're still learning and we're still growing how many are in work in progress this morning so we read in matthew chapter 20 and before we get there i want to say this if we're going to be servants and be who god's called us to be there's a few things we need to understand and first it's to fulfill the high calling of god we must understand right ambitions for serving him the cost of serving him and his standard for serving Right ambitions, the cost, and his standard for serving. What that looks like. So it says, we start in chapter 20, verse 20. 
And it says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. Quite a bold ask, if you will. Quite a bold ask, isn't it? And what mother does not want greatness for their children? As parents, I hope that we desire that our kids would go farther and do bigger and greater things than we did. And so it's, it's not wrong to wish such a thing and to desire such a thing. And, but yet she asks, and um, maybe you, know, you think about why she asked in the previous chapter. In chapter 19, Jesus uh, had, had, had the interaction with the rich young ruler. And then after that, Peter says, hey, what's in it for us? Man, we left everything. I mean, we're following you. We've left everything. So what do we get out of this deal? And Jesus actually responds and he says, for those who have left women and your, your families and your households and all these things, he says, you, they'll receive in the regeneration, he says, you 12 will rule on the thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the, she might have heard this and said, okay, if the, these guys are going to rule with Jesus, then I want my two sons to have the privileged position. Come on. I want them to have the right and the left hand. I want them to be second and third. I want the best for them. And so we don't, you know, we can look at how she asked and what she asked. And, you know, and in the account in Mark, it actually says that the two sons actually asked. So it was a trio asking this question to Jesus, which is why he responds to the sons as well. And then we have to see who's asking. It's the scripture tells us that it's Salome who is the the wife of Zebedee, and it was the two son, her two sons. And, and, and some say it's likely that she was Mary's sister. So there was a family connection here in the ask. A family connection that he's asked, she's, if that's the case, then she's asking her nephew for some favor. And this is, the, this is where she's at. And, and who knows, maybe the family connection will work in her favor. Who knows, after all, it's quite often about who you know. Come on. And your connection that gets you favor. But there are good and there are bad ambitions. And that's what I want to talk to first this morning. Is that one, there's high ambitions. And you know, we have, there's such thing as selfish ambition and there's godly ambition. I think it's important that we understand the difference. Selfish ambition and godly ambition. Ambition can be used for good things. How many know when somebody sees a need and they see a cause for the kingdom of God, and they get an ambition that God puts in their heart to do something about it, that's a good thing. When we see an injustice, and we see something, and God puts a, a vision and a plan in your heart, and something to address with that thing, then that's a good ambition. In fact, Paul said, he who desires to be a bishop desires a good thing. And so there's a good desire to fulfill the call of God. And I would say our greatest godly ambition is to be and fulfill the purpose of God and be who he's called us to be. No extra, no less, but to be who God's called us to be. Because what the work that God is doing in your life is to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And make us look like him and make us reflect him in our life and in who we are. 
And so there's this, but there's this other side. There's this other side in us that wants to seek thrones. Come on, don't get quiet this morning. That seeks thrones. And it speaks to our desire to rise to top positions. The way of the world is to leap up the corporate ladder. Come on, I live in that world as well. At any cost, force your way to the top. I've seen the chaos and the, and the uh, collateral damage that exists when people live this way selfishly. And so even though we are in the world, come on, church, we're not of the world. So you can be in a secular job. You can be ministering wherever you're at, and you can be a witness and a testimony to the goodness of God, but it's also a testimony to the character and who he is in that workplace, in that environment that you find yourself in. You see, her request was for honor, favor, and recognition, but not for employment. (laughs) Did you hear that part? Not for employment. Honor, recognition, and favor, but not for employment. The glory without the suffering. The glory without the suffering. And I'm I'm hitting some things this morning, church, because here's what we're dealing with in Western culture, Christianity. A crossless Christianity. A crossless Christianity. Christ-centered because we love what Jesus gives us and we love the benefits of the gospel. Come on, how many? We cannot forget all the benefits. He heals all our diseases. He forgives all our iniquities. He, he crowns my life with loving kindness. Come on, I've got some benefits in the kingdom of God. And that's a good thing. But there's a price. There's a cost to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, to take up your cross and to follow him, to deny yourself. And this message is lacking. It's lacking. What we have is many times a Christ-centered but crossless Christianity, one that does not embrace the suffering and the dying to self and living the crucified life. Because that looks quite different than the world with its selfish ambition. There's nothing wrong with desiring success, but make sure you desire the right success. Make sure the success is defined by God's measure, not man's. Because sometimes we're moving the needle, and the needle's being moved without knowing it. And selfish ambition gets the best of us. And all of us in this room at some time or another have had to struggle with this. All of us said denying yourself is not a one-time event. It's not a one-time. You didn't just go to the altar. I denied myself three weeks ago and I'm good. You are waking up every moment, every minute of the day. There's attitudes, there's thoughts, there's, there's things in yourself that just go awry. And you just have to go, nope, I'm going to submit to God. I'm going to deny myself in this moment, and I'm going to submit to him. I'm going to take up my cross. Selfish ambition is deadly. It says in James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is, somebody say earthly, natural, and demonic. Man, there's so many things that are wrapped in such a way they just look good and they sound good, don't they? 
The world's ideas, the world's thoughts, they just, ooh, that, that sounds good. That makes sense to me, those 12 steps or whatever it may be. To a better life. Now, I'm not talking about recovery. I'm talking about we want a step that gets us to this thing. Instead of embracing the crucified life. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, I want you to see this. There is disorder in every evil thing. Whoo! I've probably shared this before, but it's worth repeating. Selfish ambition, the word in the Greek is erythia, and it refers to electioneering <laughs> or intriguing for office. Yes. Just let that one sink in. Salome is in, you know, electioneering for, <laughs> my sons are going to get second and third spots. A desire to put oneself forward, a partisan or factious spirit. Have we seen a little bit of that in our country, in our world, in our environments? It denotes a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. And this is what happens. Why is selfish ambition so bad? Why is it so bad? We look at Isaiah 14. I don't have it up there. But concerning Satan, Lucifer. Verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. Listen to verse 13. But you said in your heart, I will. I want you. I will. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You know what the doctrine of the satanic church is? Do what thy will. Do what thy will. Oh, it just sounds so good, and it gets, it gets like wrapped in so many other things. Oh, this just feels good, and it feels right for me to do this, this, or that. But is it his will or your will? Is it his will or your will? So we're dealing with high ambition because there's a higher ambition than selfish ambition, and that is a godly, heavenly ambition for the kingdom of God and for his righteousness. I want you to see Proverbs 16 too. It says, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. I can, I'm just going to go on a bunny trail for a moment. A lot of times we're dealing with people and, and, and they may, we may feel things from them. And a lot of times we're so quick that we want to judge their motives. This, this Bible says that it's him who deals with motives. We speculate and we go, what's their motives? But Jesus, the Lord sees the motives of the heart. He sees the thoughts and the intentions and he sees and he weighs it, the Bible says. He weighs it. So he's weighing those ambitions in our hearts. Then there's godly ambition. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. And Paul exhorts the church at Philippi and he says, Make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, 
united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I love that. Same mind, same love, same purpose. Yeah, we have, we have unique callings and unique things that God is calling out in your life to do and to fulfill. But the same purpose is this. It's his glory. I thought, you, I thought you'd get excited about it. The same purpose is this. It's his glory. Come on, church. We can open up the coffee bar again if we need to. But all right. <laughs> do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do you see that? Man, that is a culture in a church. That is an environment in a church that is healthy. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I talked to one pastor one time, and he had planted a church, and he had been several years into it. And he says, you know the hardest thing I have to deal with? I said, what's that? He says, selfish ambition. I so badly want to release people into places of ministry, but they got agendas. And it's not his agenda. Are you with me? We want to be operating under God's agenda for the ministry he's called us to. And it's submitted to him, and it's for his glory, not so I can build something bigger, better, and get my name on it and my brand and my, come on. Paul had one brand. It was Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he desired. And he says, merely, don't look out merely for your own personal interests. You see, it doesn't say not to look out for your personal interests at all. Come on. Don't read that wrong. But not merely. But also for the interests of others. The motivation of, the great, of a great servant is love. Paul is exhorting the Philippians here to st- let that be the compelling force in our lives. Amen? The compelling force. The motive of, the ser- of serving is not admiration of others, but rather ministry to others. And see, there's an important dynamic, and it's probably another message for another time, but I'll share this because we often are trying to do before we understand our be. Do you know that God didn't call you a human doing? But see, you've got to get the being part right, the identity of who you are in Christ, secure in his love, secure in his grace, knowing what he's done for you and knowing who he's called you to be and hearing that admiration of the Father that says, this is my son or my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And then out of that place of acceptance, and then you can do because you're no longer doing to be accepted. But you're doing because you're accepted. That's better. All right, detour. Okay. Have this attitude, going on, verse 5 of Philippians 2, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied. Somebody say, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself. And that that word means that he laid aside his privileges, 
his position to be what we need him to be, to be what the Father needed him to be. Quite the opposite of what was being sought here. Remember that he had just got done describing to him and foretelling to the disciples what was going to happen. That he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be convicted, that he was going to be condemned, that they were going to beat him and crucify him, and that after three days he would rise again. And I don't know if that just went, shoo, missed that. But in that moment, kind of a sensitive moment, the Son of God is telling you of the most critical event in history that's about to take place. Hey, can I be on your throne? With you? Mom, just that, I don't know if it's lack of social awareness or what, but just missing the cues on that one. Jesus is like, did you just hear me? What do you want? Um, where was I? All right. Jesus, in Matthew 20, 22 and 23, keep going there. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And he challenges them. They didn't yet understand fully the revelation of his mission, of his purpose, and what the Son of God was going about to give of himself. And so they're thinking of it from the perspective of worldly kingdoms and worldly arrangements, if you will, that it should be the most privileged spot that I desire. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Whoo, getting bold now. He said to them, but my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom the Father, whom it has been prepared by my Father. Are you able to drink the cup? You see, they made the same mistake that many of us do. And that is, we underestimate the cost of the request, and we overestimate our own importance. We underestimate the cost of the request, and we overestimate our own importance. Number two is the high cost. He's been speaking about his crucifixion and in his resurrection that is to come. But the cup really speaks of deep life experience that we have. Deep life experience. And it speaks of, it's a metaphor for the life experience and what God hands to you in that life. And so, what is in your cup? David said, my cup overfloweth. There's good things, there's sorrow, there's things that life come, because he says in John 16, he says, in this life you'll have trials and tribulations. That's just part of life. I know we want to skip that part. I know we want to get around that part. We just want to mute that out. You know, we have this uh, program we got connected with at home called VidAngel. Somebody use that. If you're going to watch movies these days, you probably should. But it has filters, and you can take out the bad stuff. And Hollywood just always feels like they need to put a lot of bad stuff in. But we want to do that with life, don't we? Can we just skip that part? Can we just mute that scene or just delete that part? But he says in this life, because fear not, because I've overcome the world. That's the good news. Praise God. But what's in your cup? Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
there the night before his crucifixion and says he in verse 39 of Matthew 26 it says he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me yet not as I will but as somebody you will just as it wasn't possible for Jesus to fulfill his mission and purpose to atone for the sin and redeem lost humanity without suffering, it is impossible for us as Christ followers who desire to serve him with all our hearts to avoid it. You're in a world that you're going upstream. You're going against the grain. You're going to, he said, you're going to suffer. All those who desire, Paul says to Timothy, all those who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And why am I speaking this message this morning? Because this is the time we're living in. I believe it's getting elevated. I believe it's the, the heat is getting turned up on us, the church. But in the fire, what, what gets revealed? What's good? What lasts? What's eternal is what gets revealed in the fire. The things that are temporal burn away, but what's eternal remains. For what credit is there? First Peter chapter 20, verses 20 and 21 says, For what credit is there if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. But you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You know, when you go to uh, one of these Disney parks these days, you have these, or they used to, and maybe they're not so much, they used to have this thing called the Fast Pass. Fast Pass is awesome, right? You see these big lines, and they're way back, and they're winding back, and, and if you have the fast pass, you, fast pass, you get to go in this other line that takes you right to the front, and you're like, yes, just saved an hour and a half. You, wait, you see those wait times, and, and that fast pass is a relief, because you get to where you want to get going faster. And see, we're, sometimes we are looking for the fast pass to avoid those huge slow lines in our life, but he says patiently endure somebody say patiently endure for if you patiently endure it this is what finds favor with god so endurance is key in this hour drinking our cup it's possible that james and john thought their cup would be something sweet and pleasant having not grasped yet the suffering that jesus would endure i mean some of you would like to fill that cup with i don't know Pochi, milkshake, but this cup is a cup of suffering. And so he says, their cups would be different. They surely, he turns to me, he says, you know what? You, you will drink this cup. You definitely will drink this cup. But each one of them would have different cups. James would be the first, to, first of the apostle, apostles to be a martyr. And John, with, John with, would be the only apostle apostle to not die through martyrdom but he came as close as possible come on (laughs) boiling oil so he he had to endure his cup was to endure some of some of us it's a it's a one-time big cup others it's a sippy cup it's over time 
You're like, man, pastor, you can really fill this church talking about suffering. <laughs> Praise God. That's how you do it. All right. William Barclay said, it's quite wrong to think that for the Christian life, the cup must always mean the short, sharp, bitter, agonizing struggle of martyrdom. The cup may well be the long routine of the Christian life with all its daily sacrifice, its daily struggle, and its heartbreaks, and its disappointments, and its tears. Anybody had some of that this morning? There's no one cup for the Christian to drink. His cup may be drunk in one great moment. His cup may be drunk throughout a lifetime of Christian living. And I just want to be honest with you this morning, church. It's all not flowers and roses every day. Life's real. We, we deal with real issues. And, and in this life, we have suffering. But understand that God gives us grace. Somebody say, His grace is sufficient in the midst of it to drink the cups simply means to follow christ wherever he may lead and to be like him in any situation life may bring and i was thinking about i don't know why but i had this reminder of 1999 and you guys remember the columbine tragedy and rachel scott see her cup was one moment gun pointed to her head Challenge to deny Christ on that campus when t- that day when 12 students died, and she did not. But even her had endured some stuff before that. There was a story that led to that of her standing up for Christ, of her reaching out to those lost and hurting people in her school. But that one moment, she was ready to endure. For us, many of us, it's a lifetime. For most of us, it's a lifetime of just figuring out how to navigate the ups and downs, the valleys and the mountains of life. But God's grace is the same through it all. Romans 8, 16 through 18, I'm almost done. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So you just stop there, praise God. Right? That's so good. Then he goes, if indeed we suffer with him. Finish the sentence, church, all right? So that we may also be glorified with him. But here's the perspective. Oh, I love this. The healthy perspective on the sufferings in life says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think of all those martyrs in those coliseums of the early church who were persecuted, who were thrown out against lions and as as entertainment for the crowds. I think of the catacombs where they wrote on the the tombs of their beloved ones, "I, I, I thank God that my child had the right to die for Christ, had the privilege, the honor. See, we've come a long way since that, church, haven't we? But he says, if we suffer with him, we indeed will be glorified with him. See, in the suffering, there's glory. 
And then I'm going to finish Matthew 20, 20 through 4 through 28. It says, And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great, somebody say great, among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be among you, first among you, shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, Jesus will take those moments of our tough questions and make them teachable moments about his kingdom. See, I don't fault her for asking the question because had she not asked, we don't get this. There's things, there's things we cannot discover about the kingdom of God unless we ask bold prayers. I'm proud of Jose and his prayer. We need to pray some bold prayers. We need to pray, we make some bold asks. And then in those asks, it says in James 4, sometimes we ask amiss. Why? Because we ask because of our selfish motives. But in that trans, in that relationship with him, He's so loving that he reveals, yeah, you're off here, but here's, how my, here's my kingdom purpose. Here's how you can ask in accordance with my kingdom and my will. Number three is the high standard. He says, the son of man didn't come to be served. I'm going to teach you a new way of serving that you've never seen before. I'm going to teach you what it really means to be a servant. You know, the apostles knew only the world's way of power, position, ambition, and dominance, but Jesus' kingdom was just the opposite. The empire of Rome was run by the iron hand of the emperor who controlled the Senate and Roman army. This chain of command gave prominence to those in authority, but the kingdom of heaven gives prominence to humble service. To humble service. They were still looking at things from a selfish perspective on what they could get, But we need to understand greatness lies not in dominance, but in service. And we need to see it, how Jesus sees it. Turn to John chapter 13. And I love, even leading up to this passage in John 13, what Jesus does here. Because it says the beginning of John 13, one of the most profound statements. I'll just read verse 1, and then we'll come to this passage here. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Come on, somebody say to the end. But go down to verse 3, and he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. I want you to see how profound this is. He knew where he had come from. He knew what he had, and he knew where he was going. And with that, he served. And you see, we need a revelation like that in our lives. Where we're from, born of above, come on church. What we have, 
every spiritual blessing in heavenly places do we need to go through it? They're the laundry list of things that God has given us and where we're going. And in that mindset, in that understanding, that revelation, he girded himself. And he says, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, in verse 12, and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so, so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. That's the example. The other thing, he washed the feet of Peter, knowing he would deny him. He washed the feet of Thomas, knowing he would doubt him. He washed the feet of Judas, knowing he would betray him. Ooh, that goes so far beyond our thinking of what servanthood is. To serve those who will deny, who will leave, who will abandon, who will perhaps betray. Jesus did it. He says, this is my example. This is my standard. This is what I've called us, we've been called to. And he says, and he gave his life and give his life as a ransom for many. The suffering servant gave his life to pay the price of redemption so that we who were under the bondage of sin could be liberated from the misery and penalty of our sins. I want you to know this morning the price has been paid, but it must be accepted on his terms. Repenting and turning to him with all your heart and receiving. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Awesome that Jesus gave himself. Will you stand to your feet this morning? And I just want to pray over you, church, before we take communion. He emptied himself. He did not grasp his position. I feel this morning that the Holy Spirit would be speaking to our hearts. He's speaking to our hearts. and Whatever he wants to say to you this morning, I, will we just take a moment and let him speak to us. Because I believe in this place there's a, are so many hearts to serve. And maybe this morning the Holy Spirit just needs to adjust the compass a little bit. Maybe the Lord just wants to deal with some ambitions in us that maybe aren't from Him. and direct us. And you know, when you think about ambitions, uh, William Barclay said this, he said, the two greatest days of my life were the day I was born and the day I discovered why. 
was having a conversation the other day where I said, what's your why? And does your why matter? What's our why and does our why matter? (laughs) Our why is to live for him and to be his. And I just feel like the Holy Spirit this morning would want to speak to us and bring us back to that place of just simple surrender, simple obedience, because Jesus was obedient. His name was highly exalted. That obedience, that's what Lord's after in us. And maybe it means that we have to lay down our way, we have to deny some things, deny ourselves. But let the Holy Spirit just speak to you this morning. Father, I just pray over your church. Thank you so much that you are here. Thank you, Lord, that you're speaking to hearts this morning and that you are preparing in us, making us those who will be servants in your house, those who will be servants for your kingdom, God. Help us, Lord, to have the mindset that you did, to have this attitude in us, which was also in you, Jesus. Not grasping on to things that don't belong, but grabbing hold of what you have for us, Lord. Pressing on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord. I thank you for awakening hearts. I thank you for speaking to us. If there's anyone in this place and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never fully committed your life, you need to this morning. You need to respond to his gift of salvation. Repent. Turn from your way. Turn to Jesus. Give him your life. Give him everything. You'll never regret it. Love that testimony this morning about the husband who's got saved and he's never, ever forgotten it, (laughs) how much it means to him. He delivers us. He sets us free. And then we belong to him. He's Lord of all in our lives. Lord of everything. So if that's you, you need to make him Lord. You need to call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says in Romans 10, it says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple and yet that profound. And yes, it will cost you everything but it's worth it all. It's worth it all. For I consider, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Praise you, Jesus.